welcome to episode 13 of the Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of inspirational South Africans. Our guest in this episode is Muzi Maimani. It's taken the Democratic Alliance a full year to elect a leader to succeed Maimani, the energetic 30-something from Soweto who led South Africa's official opposition for five and a half years. Maimani's resignation came in the wake of the party losing five of its 89 parliamentary seats as growth stalled during the 2019 national election. In this interview with a just-turned 40-year-old pastor who's returned now to his activist roots, we get the inside story of his rationale for resigning from the DA and get exposed to the strides he's been making outside the party political bubble. We'll also hear how Mainmani's mushrooming One South Africa movement is gearing up for a changing political landscape. That's one that has been promised through the rewriting of South Africa's Electoral Act demanded by the Constitutional Court. As always, we start at the beginning. Muzi, I see from your CV that you were born 40 years ago in a, a very modest Krugersdorp Leratong Hospital. Yeah. It's an old state hospital that uh, literally is outside Kahiso Township, which borders Dobsonville, Soweto, which is where I grew up. And really brings back so many memories. It's been a uh, living in Soweto and it's been a joy. But that's that's kind of my background. I'm a proud Sowetan who grew up to a mother from the Eastern Cape who came to work as a, as a cashier and a father from the Northwest. So we are the accidental design of what apartheid migrant labor meant ended up with me being born in this, in this beautiful township called Soweto. And extraordinary to see that your mom comes from a place called Kofimvaba, which is the birthplace of Chris Harney. We are Tosa at home. I've visited now Kofimvaba, Tsomo a few times and what a beautiful valley, what a beautiful part of the world. And yeah, it, it's, it's filled with contrast. You know, there's such a beautiful valley, beautiful place, but also you can't help but not miss the government's failures that are taking place there. So, so it's an interesting place in and of itself. My family, we are from the clan of uh, Madonna, Kwasithoi, which is the broader uh, clans that are in the Eastern Cape, particularly in that region. And when I grew up, my family weren't always political, but the leadership of people like Chris Hani reverberates in, in the region because he has people who were part of the broader village in and of itself. If you think about it within that, all that kilometer radius, once you get past Somo, you eventually get to Kunu, where President Nelson Mandela comes from. You eventually get to, in fact, where people like Gwede Mantashe, his village is not far from there. So there's almost this um, 
legacy component that has been bequeathed to the Eastern Cape. But my most celebrated citizen who comes from that region would be probably even from a, from King Williamstown and, and Steve Biko. And that whole valley is something that has shaped so much of my family's own background and views of the world. And Mandela was from a similar area of where your family grew up. Something that he loved, and I see you love as well as boxing. We grew up at a time, obviously, of leaders like Baby Jake Matlala in Soweto, people like Dingan Tobela, uh, boxers of the day. And my family were football lovers. And so boxing, you just celebrated the boxers, but never thinking yourself you take up boxing. But I can recall one of these days, I had a young guy who was in our own church and said to us, listen, you love training. I think you'll enjoy boxing. And he invited me to it. And I remember from the first day, because the art of boxing is so much that you learn how to not only throw a punch, but take one. I'd realized that it was the best, not only fitness, but the most exciting mental game you can be a part of. Because there, you learn, regardless of how many punches are raining on you, you best keep your hands up. And I've come to really, really enjoy boxing and uh, now have a regular schedule. And we're starting to get back into the ring more and admire just the, the fitness component of it. And so when I went to Robben Island and started to see the, the boxing club there and realized the role that it played in amongst the prisoners, and I've built a very good friendship with someone like Tara Lakota, many of the Robben Island prisoners, and then celebrating the life of Nelson Mandela, it became something that when you reflect on, you just think, wow, yeah, I hope I understood what he understood about boxing because you begin just to learn how just how much of a fun experience it is, but also just such a fitness and mental training that you get. So I'm loving boxing at this point. Quite a lot of discipline. Absolutely, because just the, the mechanisms of boxing are such that, you know, your routines have become the same, your your combinations become such a, an important repertoire of your attack. and But just learning to keep your hands up, any boxer would tell you the trick is to try and get someone to lower their guard and then land a knockout punch. And if you can figure out how to keep your hands up and be disciplined in that space, it not only helps you in the ring, but I found that it helped me just in my day-to-day -day life, just in the activities I get involved with. It. It's Sometimes it's not the funnest thing to go through, but you keep your hands up and you keep going. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. The other thing that you're known for is being a man of God. So where did that all start? In Soweto, when we were growing up, the family is not the immediate unit of father, child, father, mother, and children. It's aunts, grandmothers. And because all of us were ended up as the Maimani Prada clan, ended up in Soweto, all of us were all going to the Catholic Church. And I'm most grateful for that upbringing because it was through that that not only taught me faith, but I've always been encouraged by the role that the Catholics played in that well in the middle of apartheid felt we could put schools in townships and teach black kids a better education than what they would get from the state. And it was, I think, about the role that in some ways the Methodists played in someone like Mandela's lives or whatever. It, it had that impact. So faith began something that we all grew up under, and it became such a seminal part of our lives. In fact, everything was ordered around that. 
when I finished high school, I was 16 in matric. I didn't think I'd have a lot to do with my life. I couldn't drive. My parents didn't have money to send me to university. So I almost felt I had a year to waste. And it was in that year that I think I began to say, can I serve? And the only place that could take me to serve was in a local church that said, come work with our young people. And that deepened that faith. That gave me an opportunity to express purpose, but to connect deeply with with a faith in that sense. Was this the Liberty Church Discovery Campus in Rudaport, which is near where you grew up? I mean, it started off in a, in a community out in Muldersdruff, which was a little bit more rural. So I'd moved away from home at that point. So I spent a year there working for a youth organization, Scripture Union, and then worked in partnership with local churches. And then subsequent to that, then moved to Liberty Church in, in Discovery at the start. And then we had another campus in Randburg. And that gave me a real authentic sense of spirituality as it reflects the world. It gave me the courage to to believe that I wasn't just placed here on this earth just to consume, but to really make a contribution. And it was through the activities of that church that I got to have a, a love for education, especially around young people, but also a sense upon which it was an unjust thing for me to be living not far from there, throwing away food, quote unquote, whilst other people didn't have food. So that worldview was shaped not only by my faith, but my experiences at Liberty Church and Community Ministries. It's quite interesting when you read through the background of the ANC, ruling political party in South Africa, and one that you've fought doggedly for some years now, that religion, the church, played a huge part in the backgrounds of the early leaders. Indeed, even Cyril Maposa, when he was a young boy, was a, a devout Lutheran who used to walk around Soweto with a Bible under his arm. I guess that's changed over the years, but it is strange that you would see that deeply imbued spirituality not coming out in politics much. Uh, <laughs> nowadays, people look at politicians and, and see them as the antithesis of what you would expect from God-fearing people. Yeah, and I think when you look at a township like Soweto, you you can't walk for longer than three kilometers and not bump into a church in some format or another. I think the idea of God wasn't something that you opted in, opted in out. It almost as though from the day you come out of, you get back from hospital, there's an innate belief that says there's a higher being that's in charge. And it was through church missionaries and leaders that then, for me, even for example, the very idea of non-racialism was shaped by the Catholic priests who were Irish, white, arriving in South Africa saying, we don't see the differences as what the apartheid government wants to tell you. So just that alone was the seedbeds of not believing that actually it is possible to love someone of a different race, that that's where even just practically living that through. And Catholic nuns, a nun, uh, Sister Christina Mutloung, who had such a massive shaping of my own beliefs about the world, happened to have shared a cell with Nomvula Mokonyane and was a political prisoner herself. She was a woman who spent so much time with me saying, Musi, your battle in this world is not only, not only to be a, and a human being who stands equal with any other race, but to fight for justice in the world. And so I think the idea of faith was so ingrained in, in genuine activism. I think what's become more confusing nowadays is that politics has become so divorced from activism 
that in fact people go into politics for careerism without really a cause to address and an ache in society to fight it for, but rather a political opportunity for them to earn an income. And for others, earning that income even moves beyond what their legal means become. It becomes extra legal. And I think we've lost that. We've lost that sense of activism born out of a genuine belief for a fight for justice, whether it be social justice or or just even the idea that it uh, we need to be able to represent human beings who are left out. So, so to me, faith and spirituality have never been separate from the work that I've done. I've always viewed my work from almost the spiritual lens that says you are here for a particular purpose, and the view is to say how do you bring justice in the world. I think most families have their discussions. Uh, one that we have often with my 95-year-old father-in-law is why the churches are so silent nowadays, whereas during apartheid they were amongst the loudest voices. So to, to the earlier point I made, the loss of activism, the diagnosis of the problem, in that I think apartheid had a simple diagnostic tool, right? You had a system that excluded humanity on the basis of race, and therefore you needed to mobilize to fight against it. And there was a natural target. I think today the church has become in some ways confused about what is still the fight for. And I think it's lost its own theological frame that says, surely injustice in the world cannot continue. Surely the sense upon which many citizens are left out of economic opportunities cannot be something that continues. And even legislation that comes through cannot be legislation that muzzles the role of the church in society. And in many ways, part of what became quite difficult is that as an effective way of mobilizing society prior to 1994, that the church was at the forefront of that. It felt like the triumph of the ANC was part of the triumph of the church. And now it feels a bit anomalous for the church to see itself fighting its fellow, in this instance, comrades or people who fought alongside them. Whereas I would urge now that as we recognize the degrees of corruption that are coming on board, the sense of poverty levels that are there, in many ways, racial discrimination. I've often now started to get back to the church more and saying to them, you should be the first ones in Seneca, making sure that there's peace, which is aligned to your theology. But more than anything, you should be at the forefront of making sure that where there's an injustice being committed in the world, the church ought to be the first voice there. And lastly, that you cannot have a government that is co-opted the church. You need a government that you can hold accountable and speak what you believe is your truth into the ears of that government and to that power. And so I think there's a reawakening. It's certainly taking a long time. And there's some encouraging signs. When I see what Archbishop Mahoba is starting to speak out and say, I think there's some encouragement in that sense. When I see what the Catholic Bishops Conference is doing, when I see some of the evangelical community and and some of the African traditional church, I do think there's a sense of which that voice is coming back as they're realizing that as they sit in their pews week on week are citizens who are not only losing their work opportunities, but these are people who are hungry and left out, and that our country's reconciliation project is fraying because there's political entrepreneurship that actually seeks to drive people apart, that we need to get back to a deeper sense of mission as to what the church's ultimate mission is in a time such as this one. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News.
You did your first degree through UNISA. We know that's not an easy thing to do, part-time study. Why did you decide to do psychology or focus there? Two reasons. I was, I was always interested in human development. Uh, I, I love the idea that perhaps as someone of faith, I wanted to understand how human beings make choices, how communities organize themselves, and, and thought that it would be a good arsenal if I thought I'd ended up just primarily just doing uh, church work in that sense, to have another tool in your arsenal that you can actually really help people towards self-actualization, as it were. So, so I, I studied it from that perspective. The second reason is it was from a, the discipline of, of the arts was one of the more, the more accessible in the bachelor's degrees for me that I could really connect with. And we didn't have money as a family. So when I finished school, I thought I'm going to go do this degree. And this is probably one that I feel most connected to and would be appealing to the social context. And UNISA was most inexpensive of the lot. So it gave me an opportunity to do it that way. Uh, and that was the interest. What were you doing in the day? Obviously, UNISA is a correspondence university. How were you making a living? Yeah, um, unknown. I worked actually part of the time for total sports. Um, so I'm an expert at selling shoes and tennis rackets. So <laughs> at least if I could say I know something, <laughs> I know what pronation and all of that shoemaking business is about. So I did, I did that. And along during the day, I obviously volunteered as a youth worker in many different NGOs. And that uh, was, yeah, gave me the time to spend between studying and also developing personally. So that's, that's how I, I made an income, working for Total Sports and volunteering at NGOs while studying. And then it was off to WITS. How did you manage to fund that? The WITS story, I mean, really much later, I then enrolled for this master's program. And at that time, just through being involved in church, I started to run this consultancy on leadership and human development which was really helpful. So in many ways, the VITS project gave me time where during the day I could earn a living by consulting and doing all of that, and then I could attend lectures at night. And we did that for two years. And it's funny enough, uh, one of my introduction, I, I went into a lecture that was delivered by Professor Mohammed Jaihad. At that time, he'd been involved in the economics cluster with President Mbeki, and I remember sitting at this lecture, listening to this man talk about the circular flow of money. I remember the lecture all too well and, and what economics could actually do in terms of achieving an inclusive economy in society. And I've only had a few moments in my life where I thought, this is one of the things I want to do for the rest of my life. And it kind of gave me the resolve to stick it through. It was through that lecture that developed a, a courage to say, I want to find an economic model that works for the poor. So I've had that. That was a powerful experience. And Vitz, to me, then spending those two years, those night lectures, has been some of the times where we could debate economic policy and, and really shape so much of the things that I believe today about how the world should work. It sounds, given the course, that you would have rubbed shoulders with fellow students who would have gone into government, presumably not all of them were crooks, <laughs> which is the perception nowadays. Yeah, yeah. My, my classmates were really great people. Um, many of them now serve in the bureaucracy itself. Some of them obviously have gone to corporate because they can earn a lot more there. 
But I enjoyed even some of the lectures, you know, some of the lecturers themselves, because the class by sheer accident decided that I should become its representative. So I used to sit on the university's representative council and we'd literally have to interact with so many of the lectures. And, and I know many of the lectures who are still at VIT still advise government in that sense. So it kind of gave me this nice bridge. And also people I didn't agree with. I mean, I remember having, who didn't work at VITS at the time, but Chris Malikane, who was then Kosatu's chief economist, we used to have raging debates about what his view of the world is and what our view of the world is. And so so just the interaction, just in a professional, collegial sort of way, was a really helpful experience. Some were very much often at the time concerned about some of my own political decision-making. And it was always good to come to class, post a, a heavy press conference as to what people would say. But I was privileged enough to study with really some top-caliber people and had great lectures at the time. Really, really, really it was a world-class course. And your international university experience? Yeah. You know, Bangor, where I did my master's in theology, was really, well, I did my dissertation on community leadership as a focal point. So it was nice to get an international perspective as to how there's an intersect between faith, between community leadership, and who are the actors and players in it. It gave me a good network of leaders across the globe because there you were interacting with students from the US, from the UK, from Easter, from Asian countries, sort of connecting and debating really what does global leadership look like and what is what is the role of leadership in that sense. When I look at it today, I would recommend it even for my own kids to be able to do it because I just think that you need that international experience to hear that. In some instances, South Africa is not that unique. And in other instances, we're really, really unique. Your political career has been extremely well documented. You achieved a great deal early. You were perceived by some people as being on a fast track because of a relationship with Helen Ziller. And I'd love you to, to, to maybe unpack that a little bit for us. And then when you were at the top of your game, you went into an election Things didn't work out that well. You were the guy who was blamed. Not long afterwards, left the Democratic Alliance, left as the leader of the opposition at a very young age, then still in your 30s. And now you, you're doing things very differently. But your role model for going into politics in the first instance. I mean, there are many. I, I started off with Sister Christina, who was this nun, who was an activist. And I say this. I never went into politics for, for any position, despite the fact that I ended up in many positions. It's quite like uh, a strange way of going about it, having led the caucus in Joburg and, and then being leader of the opposition. But I think one of the things I realized quite quickly on is that politics had become this elite project and you miss the sense of activism. So I, from a role modeling point of view, Someone like Sister Christina played such a powerful role. But looking at Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite philosophers, says, you know, what, worry not about the stage you call to be on. Worry that you've got something worthwhile to say, not just intellectually, but genuinely out of a true conviction. And I realized that the longer I stayed in the DA, so despite all the, the politics and the machinations that took place, I realized that 
my project of wanting to genuinely build this one South Africa to my project of actually trying to build, to break down some of the spatial networks, that sense of activism was becoming less and less of a focal point. The politics were starting to get more and more in the way. And I found I'd spend too much time trying to do that than actually being an activist or fighting for society. So there's a dynamic about that that I always felt was crucial. And the immediate people who, when I think about even the role that someone like perhaps maybe President Clinton in the U.S. became in some ways, others would define him as the first president of the U.S. who understood and articulated racial exclusion of the African-Americans and began to fight that battle. And it always struck me so profoundly when I look at someone like even Helen Suzman, that she, to me today, and as a leader inside the DA, became someone that I thought, here was a woman who was a Jewish woman fighting on behalf of black Christian men when she went to Robben Island and fought for them. So there's a modeling in that that says, I don't have to be a woman to fight for women's rights, neither do I have to be a particular race to fight for a race that's different to mine. So between Helen Suzman, Sister Christina, and perhaps maybe at a global platform, people like President Clinton have shared such a modeling space for me to be able to say that actually what we're all trying to almost swim against is the fact that when you get into the political track, this elitist project, you become part of the winners. You become part of the inside group. You quickly forget, as Nelson Mandela had to constantly remind himself, what is the price of bread? What do ordinary citizens go through? You quickly become part of the insiders who seek to pretend as to how you can fix the problems of the outsiders without really engaging genuinely. So this project that I'm engaged with now has given me an opportunity to almost break from just that elitist project, get back to grassroots, because to parallel the ANC, when it began in 1912, it began as a movement. It was really not about positions, not about any of that. It was a, an honest movement. And I think in the world today, what is starting to speak to not only millennials, but speak to the core of humanity is to say we're tired of politicians, we're tired of careerists, we genuinely want to get back to a degree of activism. And when you do that, you really can impact something in the heart of humanity to make a difference. And if, like me, what drove me to politics was a sense of calling at one level, but at an, another level, the sense of here's a purpose with which I've been authored to do, I think that exists in every human being. And our job is to find that in others. So I think, for me, that's what South Africa desperately needs. And, and so from a modeling point of view, those are people who've always tapped into that. And it was in many ways what drove me to so many of the positions that I held eventually, because I always thought we've got to be able to make a difference where we can. And so my activism is still something that I, I felt politics got in the way of a little bit. Helen Zilla? Helen, Helen was, a, was someone I really admired you know i admired her because when i when i started my engagement with politics i thought to myself who runs governments that are actually delivering because i thought the ache in south africa was about delivery and at that time she was mayor of cape town and i thought she was doing a phenomenal job i was really impressed by the fact that 
at the time when I first met Helen, here was someone who didn't bring title first, she brought herself first. So she kind of was like, I'm not Helen Zilla, the mayor or the leader of the deer. I'm Helen. And I thought that was admirable. And working with her even earlier on, I honestly believed that she understood what needed to be done from a, from a racial harmony point of view, that actually the project she was engaged with in the DA could be a project that seeks to work for all citizens. And I feel like I've met, that was one Helen Zilla I met. And then there was another. When I was working with her, I felt that really just even in working together, we could really advance this project. And then I think when the roles changed, something in, in a group of people who felt like they'd lost out and now needed to get back realized that she was the only other strongest force within the DA and therefore could mobilize with her to bring certain aspects that certainly were diverse from the views I thought she shared and the views I shared. So, for example, and even their recent decisions have come, have bored itself out, the idea that actually racial injustice or that by calling yourself so-called colorblind, you almost in some ways wipe out so much of the racial pain that we've experienced as a country. And acknowledging race doesn't make you a racist. It just simply means that you can appreciate diversity, but you can work hard to address, to address injustice. And those things then became lost more and more. And I, yeah, I felt quite sad that the project of the DA that is happening right now is a project almost foreign to what I work towards. But all those elements were always there in the party, and we worked hard to make sure that, wait, if the DA is going to win, it has to work with all citizens, not just some. And I feel it's regressed back now to become a party focused on minorities and minorities of particular race, which is, to me, sad and a missed opportunity in a country that so desperately needs a movement of all races. So, so in some ways, uh, Helen has that, to me, that duality to her. There was a story of the Helen I met earlier on and a story of Helen I encountered later on in my own leadership. And those are two different people. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. The One South African Movement, Michael Lewis and other people who've, who've come closest to you, helping you with it. Where was the idea born? I, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I was in Parliament attending a gender-based violence march that was happening outside it. And I remember listening to South African citizens, women describing the horrendous atrocities that were committed against women. The chant in the middle of this afternoon started to call for President Ramaphosa to come and address this crowd. And he was at the World Economic Forum, if you'll remember that march. These cars went and got whipped out and he drove back to come and address the march. He stood up on the podium and like in a true political sense, because you can't say you've been around the block if you've never experienced this, when you see that you don't have really the audience with you. And as he was speaking, I realized he was getting more and more desperate to get this crowd on their side, that he was making statements that some of them were just extreme. Like, we're going to scrap bail immediately and all of that. And I just thought I could listen to the audience going, this audience is giving him one last chance. If he doesn't say something here that is going to appease the anger that is palpable here, the next time this crowd comes back, it's not going to be as peaceful as it is. 
So as we walked back into Parliament, President Ramaphosa and I have got a very good relationship. So I settled up next to him in the sea of security and put my arm around him and said to him, you know, Mr. President, what I noticed there today is that what happens inside this parliament doesn't talk to the people out there because they've disconnected. And believe you me, the next time those people return, it is going to be beyond dangerous because they will not listen to anybody. And unless we fix that, we're losing the ear and the leadership of the nation. I felt like I was telling him that Kaiser Chiefs had changed their coach. He kind of nodded and, okay, fine, I hear what you're saying. But it was like um, another moment in my life where I thought to myself, I can't remain in this parliament. So much of the politics that take place in the DA sometimes get attributed to why I left. I think either way I got to a point where I thought election or no election. I'm convinced even as I sit here today that had, had, had I gone to a DA Congress, I would have won it quite comfortably. So the, so the issue wasn't whether I feared the DA internal electorate. It was that I realized that the political vehicles were no longer talking to those women who are on the outside. And I resolved then to say, we've got to go build a grassroots movement. And in fact, I then almost began to set in motion, how can we go and meet communities? How can we go and actually build a non-racial movement? How can we get back to say we can agree on values and listen to one another? And how can we bring change from the bottom up? So we then advocated. We advocated really for three things. We said we'll work on entrepreneurship, make sure that we can help stimulate microenterprise. We'll fight like anything to build an education system that works for everybody. And the third leg was this direct elections conversation. And so in partnership with Michael Louis, who had been fighting the court case, we said there's a natural synergy here. And when the constitutional court judgment then de delivered that judgment to say independence could stand, I thought it legitimized the fact that we could build a movement of activists who could represent citizens directly in parliament. So to me, it truly does break down the elitist nature of the political program, because I think there are already 50 parties, and I don't think citizens are interested in more parties. I think it gave us an opportunity to say, can we engage the 17 million who are left out, and ultimately hear the cry of the citizens on the ground, so that one day when Parliament sits and convenes, its conversations aren't just simply about whatever the elitist project is, but it truly is about how do we broaden an inclusive South Africa for all. So this has become the obsession of my life. And I honestly, fundamentally believe it is the only way we're going to be able to bring change to our nation is if we can be able to work with citizens. Because that change won't just be about changing colors. I've been part of being able to change governments. You will recall that when I led the DA, we governed in four metros. The easiest to govern was in Cape Town. The second easiest was in Port Elizabeth, and then you dealt with Johannesburg and Chuan. So in all four of those metros, I can tell different stories for each one. But in truth, when I think about Nelson Mandela Bay, which was the first to create some challenges, is that whilst we had a strong number, it still meant that the citizens didn't matter because the political decision-making could decide who could change and when they could change. And now today, that municipality is run by by a government that, in my view, does not represent the interests and the will of the citizens. So it genuinely undermined democracy in, in one sense. And I said, no, we've got to get back. Imagine if PE had a whole ton of people who came from the grassroots up and said, we will make decisions that are consistent for our citizens because we are public representatives in that way. 
would it be a different story today when it comes to coalition management and what kind of objectives the municipality put forward? And then I also do think once you put an independent mode on the table, you can de-link the political capture of the state so that the bureaucrats are also just part of the political uh, infrastructure rather than actually competent bureaucrats who serve the state. So I am working hard to get back to doing those three things in communities, but recruiting the best people to represent South Africans in parliament. And if they can be activists who advocate for those who are on, on the outside and hold people to account, I really believe we could build a grassroots, mass-based movement that will bring change to this country. You said the 17 million. Are those the people who could vote but didn't? Yeah. So and in many ways, when you look at the electoral map of South Africa, those who voted last year in the minority, the commanding majority that the ANC shares is a majority born out of the minority of people who vote. And I think we've got to get young people back into the political activism. The majority of those 17 million are young, they are unemployed, and we've got to work with them so that we can produce the leadership that enthuses them back into a sense of saying the country, democracy, is about them. And I think, uh, Alec, you'd know very well that the Brexit vote, rightly or wrongly, whether, whatever side of the facts fence you're on, was young people saying, we've made a decision about something. And I think South Africa, we can't surrender the political project to politicians. It's, as someone said, it is far too important than that. So I am urgently working hard. And, and, and we've really started to enhance activism. We've said to ourselves, we'll judge people by how well they do. So even in this period of COVID, we've been able to deliver over 2 million meals. We've set up a blended learning center, and we're going to roll these out in communities. And I fundamentally believe that we could build a grassroots-based activism, that when you say power to the people and by the people, you can really give authentic meaning to it. What have you actually been doing practically in the last year with the One South Africa movement? And I hear what you say. It's a lovely strategy. But on a day-to-day -day basis, are you pounding the beat, as it were, going into the rural areas, uh, using those seven languages that you speak? <laughs> I ask anybody who becomes part of One South Africa to do three things, right? Be an activist. So you've got to do something in your community that matters. So like I said earlier on, during COVID, the biggest um, need was hunger. So we worked hard. We raised money to try and get meals to communities. So we did about 2 million meals. Now we're setting up food gardens in all communities. We're not a food distribution agency, but we know very well that when we do that, we can test who leads in the community. We can be able to identify crucial people who can work with being able to bring social change. So that was on the one component. We talk about advocacy. So on a day-to-day -day regular basis, the advocacy work, that's why we are able to table uh, post-COVID economic plans. So that means I have to write quite a lot of policy stuff that says, how do we reimagine South Africa and be able to say, and I know that many people will stone me for saying this, but we are fast moving into a post-ideological world. Young people and future generations are not waking up in the morning asking themselves, am I a socialist, a communist, a capitalist, or whatever. They want solutions that work. They're concerned about issues of the day. It's whether or not we can safeguard the environment that becomes the question. It's whether or not we can be able to be future orientated. So I'm writing policy with that lens, saying there must be another way, rather than, in fact, the polarizing views of whether you're liberal or whatever. In fact, when I look at the American uh, elections that are taking place right now, 
it's very difficult to say to yourself, well, this is classically Republican, this is classically Democrats, whilst I accept that the candidates might come from different persuasions, the electorate are sitting going, our ache is that we are without food, we're without work, this is what we want. And South Africa needs to get towards that, where we can reform our policies to say what works for citizens at this point. So I've been spending quite a lot of time doing advocacy work, but also writing policy stuff. And like we've been working on the draft bill, because Getting the constitutional court judgment is the is the easy part. But how do we get the bill to be passed to parliament, but also get the candidates from all constituencies and communities who are able to, to represent? So not only do I go out, recruit people, uh, we've now been able to get over 15,000 activists across the country. That's a long way away from the 100,000 that we're working towards, and we'll, we'll get there progressively. I think the numbers are being captured as we go, and we'll get that right. But it's also a question of creating leaders in those communities who are able to be trained in what does government do, how does government work. So next year I've got uh, a cohort of 30 in the first quarter and another 30 in the middle in the middle, in the the middle middle quarter trained up in this in governance in the school of governance making sure that they understand how government works what their advocacy is because just because someone can lead in a community does not mean they understand the machinations of government so we've got to do some training so my days are filled up between just doing those three things activism advocacy and accountability recruitment of people and then raising the financial muscle to ensure that when we get the best candidates they've got the ability to be elected and can actually get into positions of influence. Sounds a bit like what Macron did with on March in France, where he went out there and, and, and picked people who were leaders in their own communities, not necessarily with any political background. Yeah, and, and I think we learned a lot from En Marche itself uh, in that at least Macron restored the belief that citizens actually know best what they really want in society which I thought was a really uh, refreshing view and the depoliticization of his own campaign was a really helpful thing in that he went out and said, I don't want to talk politics, I want to talk to what you need. And even in his, it's even in the way he's governed, I think it's, he's demonstrated the fact that he can go around, roll up his sleeves and say, I as the French president can still go out and meet citizens and hear what they, whether it's the yellow vests or whatever the case might be. So, so there's something powerful about that. But there are other movements that we, we're learning from a lot. You know, so historically, when you look at the solidarity movement and how that brought about change in terms of uh, the pre-communist world, how to achieve that. When we look at even in our own continent, when I think about the MDC as a simple example, as a movement for democratic change, a coalition of various citizens that work together. And I think actually in 2007, that won the election until South Africa decided that we'd put a government of national unity together. I think here in South Africa, when I think about the UDF as a movement, that was a coalition of various role players able to bring about change. Because what that does immediately is that it coalesces business, communities, uh, citizens to be able to actually work together towards a common end goal and that change. And so to your earlier question about the silencing of the church, I think this bill gives them an op- and gives the church an opportunity to do just the work of activism. And then lastly, if we're going to bring about change, we must realize that the project of politics, because it's so elite and so high income driven, it really becomes appealing in an urban center. But I want to change all of South Africa. I want all of South Africa to work together in this regard. So I spend my days going to rural communities. I've just finished um, what was 
grueling, grueling uh, road trip between the Eastern Cape, literally a month ago, traveling across to the Eastern, to rural communities. That's how I was able to get back to Edgoa and Butterworth, communities like that, rural KZN, all the four regions of Gauteng, going to the Northern Cape in Kimberley, and, and that's another whole province all on its own. How do they greet you there? Look, I think positively, much to my uh, encouragement, because I think actually when you do global surveys about what do people know about what politicians do on a day-to-day basis, most people don't actually. In fact, most people don't know what a politician's job is. They know what a politician's position is, but they don't know what the job is. So it's been such great fun just getting back to educating people to say, you can hold this person to account. Here's how you can do it. And maybe out of my own faith, believe that the opportunity that DA gave me gave me the platform to be able to get back to communities and be recognized. And much to my surprise, many people would say to me when I get to communities, they say, you know, we maybe not agreed with all that the party stood for, but we really liked your voice and we liked what you had to say. So it gives me access to communities that maybe at times I wouldn't be able to get through if I was just starting from a zero base, as it were. So there's something positive about just getting back, doing the grassroots work. And I've been really, really encouraged. And also just setting up people who can be organizers themselves. One of my pleasant surprises is that almost nearly on a day-to-day basis, I'll meet someone from somewhere who say, I went online, I checked out what one essay is about. I want to be a part of it. I've recruited so many people already. We've set up the structure. This is what we want to do. And then I sit back and I go, a vision can live beyond its financial resources or its leadership capability. It can ignite something in citizens. So to me, that's been actually a great joy to watch because I think we've gotten onto something that I think South Africans have been waiting for. And if we can be able to put muscle and effort back into, into it, I really believe there could be a moment in our nation where we could see the change that we need. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.